Hello and welcome to our first episode of Roy's Cast for the new year. I'm your host, Johnny Farley. Sam is on tech duty today, so instead we've got Lauren Thuanetti from the committee. Hi everyone, I'm your substitute host today um, and I'm joining the podcast for a very exciting announcement. With me is Ellie Smith, a member of the Preservative Party from Leeds City Museum. Yeah, um, on to our exciting announcement. As you'll have seen from our recent posts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, Roy's is coming back for a new conference in 2023. This year we'll be at Leeds City Museum. So... I suppose the main question will be why Leeds, why this year and why Leeds City Museum? So this year is Leeds's 130th birthday as a city. Uh, In 1893, they were given city status by Queen Victoria. Um, So the city is celebrating this kind of cultural and arts and heritage side um, of the city and everything that it has to offer. So as part of this, Leeds seemed like a really good option for being our host city this year, after Hull last year. In terms of Y City Museum, um, they currently have an exhibition that's about to open telling the overlooked stories of people in the city of Leeds. Yeah, it's it's very exciting. And a bit more about the conference. Um, like last year, we are trying to create a platform, uh, a space in which researchers of of heritage whether that's history archaeology literature geography anything that deals with the sort of the past of yorkshire are able to come together both academic professional and amateur or or public historians and really uh, share what they're working on and and make connections and uh, disseminate that information to the public in a in a more relaxed forum than than often offered um so again it's it's a really big theme for our, our our project this year um, and it fits in quite well with what Leeds City Museum are, are doing themselves. So yeah, uh, a new conference coming up that is on the 16th and 17th of June at Leeds City Museum. Uh, the call for papers will be going out early February. Um, so if you're looking at any part of Yorkshire's past in any discipline, please do get in touch. We'd love to have you. And one of the other reasons for our partnership with Leeds is to tie into their uh, overlooked exhibition that will be starting soon as Lauren introduced earlier so to talk more about that we have Lauren and Ellie from the museum yeah so I suppose this exhibition is the work of kind of two years research that started actually in lockdown one and essentially we as a group the preservative party um, based at Leeds City Museum we like to curate exhibitions that mean something to us um so recently we've curated an exhibition on mental health in the city of leeds um we've also done things on protest movements in the city so we are really interested in making sure that we tell kind of meaningful stories um in exhibition spaces and the kinds of things that you're not really used to seeing in museums that's what we we want to work on and that's kind of what overlooked is it's the culmination of all of these passion projects of every single member in the group um we've somehow turned it into one coherent exhibition that will open on the 10th of february to the public 
Mr. That sounds really, uh, really exciting, really interesting, and um, quite a quite a bold thing for museums to be doing now. Um, we had a similar episode a few months ago with Dr. Nick Evans about an exhibition he was putting on in Hull um, about its ties to Sierra Leone. So it seems to be quite a quite a um, a hot topic almost in this this sort of reinterpretation and re redisplaying almost of of certain histories, and in in your case, providing people with um, stories that. They wouldn't necessarily know, as, as you've said in in the chat prior to the recording. You're sort of amazed that the amount of people in Leeds don't know these stories, as they are quite quite impressive, quite key stories to what makes up the the history that is that is that is Leeds Leeds history. So you've sort of touched on it a little bit, but um, if you could drill into a little bit more where your preservative party um, came from and what the driving force has been behind it all the way through. Uh, I'll take this one just because I'm the currently the longest serving member uh well it really started because we misunderstood a brief we were doing the cultural olympiad that tied in with the 2012 olympics that were being held in london and what they wanted i believe now in hindsight was for our interpretations of exhibitions and museum gallery etc work and what we did was use the funding and put on an exhibition of things we thought were interesting, uh, which was themed around how museums got their objects, why they had them, where they came from, should we have them, these kind of things. Um, and the museum was just so impressed by, what well, the museum sector in general was so impressed by what young people were able to curate that they kept us on and formed basically a a youth group, so we're ages 14 to 24. Basically, anyone is welcome, uh, whether it is because you want to work in museums or have an interest in history or just like to socialise and talk about interesting topics. We do all sorts. We're sort of consultants for the museum service and give our sort of youthful opinions. We also... Uh, are tasked occasionally with uh, putting on exhibitions sometimes we're given the freedom to choose our own topics uh, as we have been with overlooked but we've previously done a an exhibition about the first world war that was a, a request from Leeds city council as part of their centenary commemorations but we meet every thursday for two hours uh, and that is when we plan these hence why it is two years in the making because everyone has lots of other commitments and trying to make something cohesive when there are 20 people with different opinions and time schedules can be quite difficult. Well, of course, yeah. It, it sounds like a really, really interesting concept of sort of engaging younger people into into re, re-displaying these, these museum pieces and, and sort of cracking into where museum collections come from. Because, it, it, I mean, it, as you are aware, as museum workers, traditionally a lot of the museum collections in this country are from wealthier individuals and um it sounds like that's something you're trying to tackle a bit more in this upcoming exhibition that, that you have so um if you could talk about just a just a couple not not everything don't want to spoil it but just a few of your sort of favorite stories that you will be um telling in this upcoming exhibition that'd be, that'd be really good um well i mean there's so many interesting stories um it's kind of trying not to spoil it too much um for our audiences um, when they come and join us between February and June. 
Um, but I think for me, one of the highlights at the moment, um, we were going through our text yesterday and editing it all and finalising it. And we're going to be including David Olawale, um, who I'm sure if you've watched the national news or the local news kind of in recent months, um, has become kind of more prominent um, in reporting. But essentially, um, there was a big case um, surrounding his death um, and kind of whether the police had been involved um, in some aspects of what had happened to him and the treatment of him prior to him dying. Um, and within this exhibition, we're actually very, very lucky that we've been able to go to the National Archives and we're going to be displaying some of the kind of paperwork from that police trial. And it's going to be like the first time that they've ever been on public display before. Um, obviously, the trial happened in the 1970s, so it's quite impressive. And it's quite impressive that it's an exhibition that has been curated by young people, young volunteers, and we're going to be the first to be able to put that on display. And we are giving the museum this new level or this exhibition at least, a level of transparency that's not, I don't want to say it's not existed in museums before, but one of the things that the Preservative Party are able to do because we're museum volunteers is challenge kind of the traditional notions of the museum sector and what the museum should be there and who they should stand for. So we're being really transparent in all of our decision-making throughout this entire process because there are... 20 plus members of the Preservative Party and then there's members of museum staff and everything has to go through a decision-making process and one of the things that we're really proud of is that we've actually been able to show that decision-making process within some of the case studies and the stories that we tell so we actively ask is it okay for museums to keep human remains um is it okay for museums to display, you know, things, for example, like David Oluwale's handprint, which was taken without his consent? At what kind of level do we make all of these decisions? What, Where do we kind of step in and say, actually, we're not comfortable with that, but also tell the public for the first time so that we can... Well, you know, so that people aren't asking those questions, they're going to be able to see kind of what we were thinking as we've been curating this exhibition over the last two years. And I think that that's something that's really nice. And I personally haven't seen it in lots of different museums um, across the country. But hopefully this exhibition and the fact that we're young volunteers, we're showing the ways that we can kind of disrupt the traditional system of museums in order to tell these stories that museums haven't quite focused on yet. Um, I'm quite excited to see how that's all going to turn out. Uh, I don't know about you, Ellie. Is there anything else or any other case studies that you're kind of interested in? Because, you know, there's a lot. So one of the stories that I'm particularly interested in is of William and Ellen Craft who lived in the southern United States as slaves. Ellen was the daughter of a slave and a slave-owning man, and William was her husband. 
and together they managed to concoct a plan uh, to basically escape to the northern free states and in 1850 when the fugitives uh, slave act was passed they became wanted people with a bounty on their heads and had to escape to england all of this using their own cunning and disguises and when they came to england they settled temporarily at least in leeds and worked with prominent abolitionists uh, such as william wilberforce to give their opinions on why slavery should be abolished i mean yeah that is a really interesting story because so ellen because she was um the daughter of a slave owner and a slave um a lot of the evidence suggests that she was she had fairer skin so in this kind of plan that they concocted she actually dressed up um as a man who owned a slave which was william um she wore a sling because she was illiterate so she wore a sling so that she couldn't be asked to sign anything by saying that she had an injured arm and then they actually then escaped as um, a slave owner and slave to England. Um, and when they're in Leeds, they're actually displayed on the census that was taken as fugitive slaves. Um, under occupation. Yeah, under their occupation um, on the census. So it's kind of a really interesting story to track of you know, how they came over here and the kind of skewing of gender roles and and race at that time and how they actually managed to do it um and the fact that they ended up in Leeds that's where they chose to be um at that moment in time when the census was taken um and where they kind of chose to be for quite a while in their kind of abolitionist movements one thing that's particularly interesting is that the majority of the plan was concocted by Ellen uh, and funded by William, who who worked, I believe, as a carpenter and was able to save some money for, for example, train journeys. While Ellen came up with the disguises and the backstory that would help them to escape, when they came to this country to tell their story, Ellen was not allowed to speak in public. Um, William had to address people and explain her part in drawing up their plan. And she was completely dismissed because she was female, even though the plan that people were celebrating was her idea. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's loads of really interesting stories. Um, I think we would be here for days on end if we actually kind of explained all of what we've done. Also, um, you wouldn't have a reason to come and see the exhibition. Exactly. Um, but one of the kind of other good things that we've managed to do, we've kind of... Um, positioned the contemporary with the past. So we've also been working really, really closely with um, community groups. And that's something that we've been able to do because of lockdowns and this amazing invention of Zoom. Um, It's allowed us to continue to have meetings. Um, So like with the age-friendly steering group who we've partnered with, they meet us on Zoom once a month. We have a little chat. We put the world to rights. Um, But we discuss ageism because we've actually found that this group of pensioners and our group of young volunteers or however we want to kind of uh, coin ourselves, we've actually all experienced 
ageism in some form or another. Um, so it's been really nice to talk to them. And I think now that we've we've done with one project with them, which was making some films about ageism, um, we're going to kind of keep that relationship up and we'll find a new kind of crusade to tackle. But, you know, it's it's been really lovely to work with them and to be able to see them. Similarly with the um, Deaf Arts Forum, they're kind of a new partner for us. Um, so it's a group of local deaf people um, who are interested in the arts and interested in accessibility and, and accessibility in museums and heritage sites and the arts as a whole. Um, and it's been kind of really eye-opening working with this group, um, seeing some of the challenges that they face when kind of trying to get access to heritage sites um, and to the past and history, um, seeing themselves represented in these spaces quite often. It's not something that museums have included um, in their displays. Um, and often museums aren't accessible to deaf people. Uh, there's a general consensus that just subtitles and text is enough, but many people, because of the issues amongst deaf education, can't read, for example. Yeah, so it's like it's been really nice working with them. Um, obviously, we started out, we had to have interpreters, we still have interpreters, but off the back of partnering with them, um, a few of us in the group are actually now learning BSL um, because we want to be able to communicate with this group um, by ourselves. Um, and that's kind of one of the positives that's come out of this project is we've seen where there's an issue in accessibility. We've seen something that we can do to try and rectify the problem. And as a group of young people, we've said, right, let's have a go then. Um, and really that is what we're doing, especially with the Deaf Arts Forum. And that we are actually communicating with these people as to how we could accommodate them better rather than making our own assumptions. They said it was quite unusual for people to actually consult with them ahead of putting things in place rather than as an afterthought once they had made a decision as to how to make something for example more accessible then going and finding with both groups or all our community partners even they're they're being consulted as an afterthought by the time or by which time their opinions can't actually be put into place i suppose through looking at these stories throughout history we've realized what kind of practices are in place in the museums and how they are reinforcing how certain people are overlooked. And we are trying to correct that for future generations because once something is lost, you can't get it back. But we can by trying to actively engage with community groups and tell as wide a range of stories and preserve as wide a range of stories, make a more accurate representation of what Leeds is like now for the future, which is ultimately it's supposed to be the legacy of this exhibition we've made lots of community partners that and partnerships that will keep going afterwards and we really hope that we can prove to the museum service that all stories need to be preserved of the people of leeds because this is a museum for the people of leeds and yorkshire it, it sounds like what you've been doing with your community partners and with the preservative party is you're, you're really sort of creating an example for other places to to look at and um, and hopefully adopt because as, as you say it is it is something that if when you lose it it will be gone forever and it's 
you know, it'd be better if it happened before, but there's no time like the present to, to get these changes going. Um, no, it's, it sounds like a really important bit of work and, and we're very proud to have Roy's affiliated with this exhibition. Um, and we're excited to be affiliated with Roy's 2023. So yeah, uh, please try and get down to the exhibition. It is on from the 10th of February to the 25th of June. So if you are coming to Roy's 2023 on the 16th and 17th, you'll be able to wander around and have a look at the exhibition while you're there. Um, so once again, thank you to our, our guests and our committee member for stepping in this episode. Uh, it's been a great help. Thank you for having us. Yeah, if you are interested in getting involved, um, if you want to submit a paper or a, or a talk about or any any story or research you're doing about Yorkshire's past, particularly if it covers uh, one of these the themes that we've discussed today, the overlooked, then um, we look forward to hearing from you. Again, our call for papers will be going out sometime in February, so... Keep your eyes open and yeah, thank you for listening to today's episode.